how to bring up lagging body parts. I get this question all the time, even some of my most advanced clients, and they start working with me. We're doing nutrition and contest prep work. Most of them will choose to combine training because they want to make sure that there's some synergy with all that. They know I'm a physical therapist and a strength coach, and I've got that background. And very quickly, that question comes up. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Contest Prep University, another frat house edition. Adam and I are going to talk about how to bring up lagging body parts. And uh, we've talked about training a couple different times. We have some features that I've even done with different people, people like Ryan Connolly, Eric Helms, Austin Kiergaard. So you can definitely search for those. But Adam and I want to specifically talk about lagging body parts. Adam, I get this question all the time. Even some of my most advanced clients, I mean, people who are already pros, people who are national level getting ready to become pros, and they start working with me. We're doing nutrition and contest prep work. Most of them will choose to combine training because they want to make sure that there's some synergy with all that. They know I'm a physical therapist and a strength coach, and I've got that background. And very quickly, that question comes up. And I always throw it back at them. And I, I'm not trying to be a smart ass, but yet I ask them, what are you already not doing? You know, you, you know you've identified a weak body part. Obviously, you're probably focusing on it already more than anything else. I, I know for my weakest body part, my back, my, my lat width, I trained it probably twice as many times, twice as hard, twice as long my entire career. I would do everything. And it was always that focus. And yet I was still constrained by genetic limitations. So I don't want to be a complete cynic and say that you can't do anything about it because you can but you also have those physiological boundaries of, of recovery and stimulation. So um, when, when you hear that question from clients, do you instantly just turn to, okay, you got to do this exercise and this and this, or this kind of methodology, this kind of periodization, you know, what, what, how do you even answer that question? Because I, I, I really kind of get stuck even approaching it with clients. Mm -hmm. It depends on if they're training with me or not at first, too. Um, because if they are, I'll know what they're doing. So it comes down to, <clears throat> are we training too much? Are they not recovering enough? Um, is it a food issue? So it may not even be a foundational training issue. Have they been doing all this training properly, but maybe they're in a dieting phase where they're not going to grow. So there's all these moving components. Uh, a lot of people still think that they could, uh, you know, grow into a show and that's not really going to happen unless intakes going up. And so also, you know, intensity would simply be, you know, let's see you hit some hip thrusts. Are you executing them properly? Just if they need bigger glutes, um, is foot positioning good? Are they gain it onto their hamstrings more than their glutes. So there's a lot of foundational things. I might have them send a video through Instagram. And if that checks out, you know, we'll also look at frequency, intensity, 
and uh, make sure that they're taking the time to recover and doing the nutritional modalities needed to recover as well. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean a perfectly defined pre and post workout meal. Maybe they've never even optimized hormonal profile in off season because their version of an off season six months versus a year to year in six months. So what have we really done full circle to do that? And we just have to understand some people are way slower to grow than others. And this is where sometimes you win with those clients where you see a, you know, two or three year off season and they come back way better because their body needed that much time to grow. So you really laid out, I think, just about every variable that can be addressed. And I would back up to the beginning and just make sure that each person understands what they are capable of. And, and I'm going to go through a series of physiques that, that pe- people may not know, some will. But, you know, as I've worked with just, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, thousands, I know it's been thousands of, of competitors over the last 25 years and over 150 pro titles, over 50 world champions and so forth, you just instantly know when you're looking at somebody, if they have the genetic shape to win at that level, you you just do where you don't. And so you start looking at overall skeletal structure, then you start looking at muscle structure. And I'll give you an example. I have a client right now who who's going to be an IFBB pro uh, bikini competitor and, you know, just shoulder width out to here, just huge full delts great, you know, quads, hams, and glutes, you know, can get lean enough. So that the glute fullness is just on full display delineated from the hamstrings. And when you start breaking down those genetics, you start looking at how far the glutes go down and the tendons insert on the femur. And that makes a big difference because some people can have very high kind of horizontal glutes. Some people can, can be a little bit more vertical, I look at things like quad shape. How long is the vastus lateralis tendon? Because that's going to, you know, define how wide the quads can get from the front or the side, especially if you're, let's say, a, a men's, you know, bodybuilder. Um, and, and you see people, you know, I remember Brian Whitaker, who was a lightweight world champion, Sean Clarita, who was a lightweight world champion client of mine, now the literal reigning Mr. Olympia, I believe in the under 212. And very, very, very short leg tendons, you know, quad tendons. And so from the side or from the front, they looked very different. Their quads were not strengths of theirs. I think of somebody like Jim Cordova, another world champion client of mine, whose lats looked like they literally started where his glutes, you know, uh, began. There was just no... Uh, you know, lat aponeurosa tendon there. And you, you couldn't even see the erector spinae where most people would see the lumbar musculature because the lats just went down that far. And when a muscle length is like that, it can, it's just that much wider. Uh, I was just in Tampa with John Hansen, three-time Mr. Universe. And the guy's trunk is incredibly short. So if you look at his pec musculature, it's literally half of his trunk. Whereas most men are a third to a quarter. So with a long trunk, you know, and again, so now you're looking at how square and broad the pecs can be and so forth. So these are things you can't change, obviously, but you have to know what your potential is for growth. And therefore, okay, if I, if I know I just don't have the genetic propensity for size there, 
how do I pack on the most thickness that I possibly can so that I at least, you know, I, I take it away from being as much of a weakness. Then of course it comes down to posing, which is not the topic of today, but I know you program training as well. And I know you always think of the division and the criteria. And so what this person needs and maybe, maybe a weak body part is, is okay for one person because it just happens to be something that's not that big of a factor for their division. But let's say you have a client and, you know, pick any body part. They just, they need it. They need more size. And you know, it's going to be daunting because it's a genetic challenge for them. Do you then turn toward the variables like frequency, intensity, load? Uh, You know, how are you going to tell them now that I have you as a training client, we are going to improve that body part? Yeah. So The first thing I'll look at with that is actually what shouldn't they be focusing on? You know, Um, when we have a lagging body part, we're probably going to train that more frequently. When you get down, you need more time for recovery. So why break other things down? So a great example of this, I have a client who has pretty big arms and her delts um, kind of get overshadowed by her arms. So we're trying to bring her delts up. So I actually have her training arms every two weeks because I don't really want her to grow her arms. So, and very, very low volume, just enough to maintain. And then we're doing delts about twice to sometimes three times a week, depending on how that rotation works. Um, Every other week, she might get a third day and but that third day is very short. It's just more stimulation than anything and uh, driving blood into the muscle tissue um, to get nutrients into the muscle tissue. So what we're doing is trying to pull back areas that she doesn't need to make up for that training volume. So while I have someone do an arm day, if they don't need it, when they could spend more time you know, working on something that they need, now, granted, you don't want to overtrain a muscle group. You want to make sure recovery is good. Um, so you can pull that third day if we need to and say, hey, two days a week is we're not seeing a lot of growth. So let's maybe go back to two days a week and see if that's better. I don't think once a week is going to be enough for that small muscle group. I think you can recover. Um, also look at other big muscle groups. You know, maybe they don't need legs. If you're hitting a hard leg workout, that's really hard to recover from. So if you can eliminate that. uh, So it's really not just the focus on the muscle group. It's trying not to focus on muscle groups that you don't need. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is, I will admit, a little antithetical to everything inside of me. Because as a physical therapist and somebody who cares about joint balance and so forth, uh, it's difficult for me to agree, although I do. Um, I, I've definitely come to to see that, you know, per division and so forth. And even if it was a, a performance athlete, you know, if you're a lacrosse player or, you know, I have a I have an Olympic uh, athlete who, who's on a bobsled team. You know, I mean, that's a very different training methodology than somebody who's a powerlifter or somebody who's a track athlete. Uh, and so I understand there there are frequently some emphases that are just different and not completely balanced. But I will also say not quite as a counterpoint, but as a parallel point, 
other body parts and movements. Because remember, there's two ways to think about training. There, there's muscle-focused training and movement-focused training. So if I'm, for example, if I believe the deadlift is a great movement for packing on muscle everywhere from my, you know, hamstrings, calves, all the way up to my neck, which it is. Then I also know I have other back training, some auxiliary work for lats and so forth. But just like you would do, you know, a la Louis Simmons and so forth, you're not going to just deadlift to improve your deadlift. You're doing cable pull-throughs, you're doing, you know, reverse hyperextensions and, and all that kind of stuff. And so now it becomes a real scheduling challenge to get all of those things in. And I think like most of the big names in training today, especially researchers, they're looking at training a quote muscle group and their research models are how many times a week, how many sets per week, how much total work and volume per week. Well, you're not counting all of the overlap and all of the movements and the other muscle groups and the central nervous system load on top of that. And so I, it has become an interesting scheduling obstacle just to make sure that you're getting every single movement and then the focus on strength versus hypertrophy versus anything in the middle. And so another question I have for you that I think would be very helpful, uh, you know, per maybe division, going back to your point there, like bikini versus men's physique or bodybuilding, somebody who really just wants the most muscle, I, I need the most development I possibly can how do you get all of that in without overtraining? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right, you know, when you get into volume and, you know, how much weight are you using per set and how many, how many reps, and then you multiply that over the course of the whole workout. And that's actually why I started uh, changing how I did my training recently, where you know, I don't want my clients stressed with tracking everything, but now they have the option to track the weights they used and how many reps they actually did achieve. Say if I give them a 10 to 15 rep range, you know, or let's say 12 to 15, that would be more accurate. I can look at how many reps they got and we can look at the volume for the week on how much weight was moved. And so that's a good way to really monitor your clients, you know, progress. Are their weights increasing? Are they staying about the same? Maybe they're getting weaker on things. We might need to say, hey, we're doing too much. We need to pull things back because you're not improving. Now, there could be a whole nutrition component to that, but I'll try to keep it here just because this is training. And then, uh, you know, like you said, um, if someone's doing back, I might throw their rear delts in that versus actually doing it on their shoulder day, because there's going to be some overlap on other muscle groups as well. And when you do look at the shoulders specifically, the rear delt makes up a great amount of mass for the delt. It's often very forgotten. Um, I think especially with females too, because they're so focused on everything else and you just kind of see their shoulders roll forward. So, um, you, you know, you do have to think about that crossover, you know, hitting glutes, you're hitting your hamstrings probably too. So, you know, when you do that leg day, you may not want that much hamstring engagement if you're doing glutes quite a bit. 
Yeah. One of the things that you made me think of there is when, when I had worked up to a 500 pound squat and a 500 pound deadlift, it was really the culmination of around 20 years of very intentional periodization. And I remember even when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, obviously with no physiological education or background, just simply reading what other people were doing and then having the intuition or at least trusting some of the things I was reading that, you know, you don't need to do a flat bench press three or four times a week. But if you were changing the angle a little bit and, and the, the, the force and tension, just those physics vectors. So maybe if I want to, if I do want to do something with chest three times a week, maybe one workout is very, very strength dominant, just an aggressive bench press. Then maybe I'm doing an incline dumbbell press four days later. And then, you know, maybe when I'm, you know, doing delts or something on another day, maybe I'm using some kind of a fly type movement or a, a, a cable, you know, contraction. Um, but at some point, and I know this is where we've diverged a little bit as a culture, uh, what people think of condescendingly as bro training is being very muscle focused, which is I'm, it, it's chest day, man, I'm going to go obliterate my chest and you're going to do 30 sets on just chest. And I, I can't say that that's bad or wrong. You certainly need more recovery, but some research is indicating that, you know, maybe backing that off, having kind of a, you know, even if it's a weekly nonlinear periodization model, where if you do each body part twice a week, one is kind of strength focused, one is light or, or intensity focused. Now it's eerily looking a lot like the light heavy type splits from the 1970s. So we're almost just recreating the wheel, but now with all of the little small things people want to do, like glute training four or five, six days a week on top of leg training, I definitely see more clients than ever, Adam, just saying, yeah, I don't train chest whatsoever. I don't, I don't train arms. You know, all I need for my division are, are glutes and delts. Um, and there's part of me that thinks, man, you're, you're missing so many movements that could actually not only benefit those body parts that you think you need, but that would also help with, with overall strength. Some of those, um, you know, balance points, you know, that, that like, like one of my clients who said, I desperately need delts, a bikini competitor, but I don't train chess whatsoever. And then I pointed out in her photos, you know, look how just completely, almost paper thin your thorax looks just just you know imagine if you had a little bit more muscle in your upper chest what that does posturally to your delts you can't tell me that that's not going to help your pursuit to bigger delts so I, I tend to come back to you know wanting the most muscle possible even if there are some aesthetic fine-tuning points but I, I really just, I, I can't help but think there's a mistake when people aren't training, you know, their entire body, even if, as you said, maybe it's only once every two weeks, maybe it's with different intensity levels, but is there, have you seen any issues with that? You know, any, any kind of imbalances orthopedically that, that are showing up yet as even just pain or injury? I think the anterior head gets hit pretty well from a, you know, bench press. And when that goes away, you know, you're going to see girls with less interior 
head on their delt. I, I do think that a lot of this comes from breast augmentation and surgeons telling girls never to do a push-up or a bench press again. And or they just tell them post-recovery, like six weeks back to the gym, don't do these movements. And then they forget that that was only a short period of time. I do see that time and time again. Um, I know for myself, a lot of my girls have been a lot more delt dominant. So they may be doing less chest um, than some other people. It just kind of depends on the person. But I do find that a lot of girls with augmentation are straying away from doing any chest work at all. And uh, maybe you can't do a flat bench, but maybe go to like an incline bench where it's not completely just on the chest and stimulate that anterior head. Um, where, where I really notice it being a problem is where a girl goes really big up top and now her shoulders are now compared to, um, you know, however many cubic centimeters of fluid they have in their chest now. And it does make the delts look smaller. So sometimes after the augmentation, they actually may need more delt. So it is, it is something I see as being a problem here and there for athletes. Well, I do want to turn toward nutrition. You know, you brought that, that up in the beginning and I'm going to, I'm going to also tie back in when I'm working with a client and we are definitely pursuing a lagging body part. One of my rules is yes, we can train that more often. Let's say two or three times a week, you know, two or three times in even an eight or nine day cycle. And yet we have to make sure we do some kind of micro periodization. So every workout is, you know, maybe not as aggressively heavy. Uh, there, there has to be some type of recovery mechanism where you're stimulating, but still recovering. And so you're looking at probably just condensing a mesocycle with strength and, and hypertrophy type work. But you also have to know your risk of strain, of tendonitis, of injury is greater. So if you're going to start stacking more workouts in for a single body part, you also have to be willing to call an audible and just take a day off when you need it. So when I was training my back more than any other body parts, and I would literally create this complicated schedule and, and maybe I'm training my back every four days and my legs every six days and my biceps every three days. Like I, I, I literally went through the, the, the physiology of each muscle fiber type and what I think they could withstand, withstand and, and get maximum stimulation with maximum recovery. But when you're pushing the envelope and you're condensing those workouts a little closer together to get more frequency, you know, occasionally you're going to have a sore tendon or a sore muscle, and maybe you just feel very fatigued. Maybe your central nervous system is not recovering as well. If you're not willing to punt on those days and just push a workout back a day or skip one of those extra workouts that you've already scheduled per week, it's really going to backfire. So I'm perfectly fine with extra frequency and even pushing into intensity as I would define intensity. I know that's questionable physiologically by some people, uh, then you just have to be willing to do that. And, and I, I see good results, but it does, it does have to include that huge recovery component. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of people who say, you know, like you're weak if you take an off day or, you know, take every set to absolute failure and 
um, you know, like just the real extreme of the training. And uh, I know when I send my training um, initially with clients, I say, you know, I would like you to shoot for whether it be four or five days a week. So you want to give your clients options, you know, um, just like maybe even we do that with food and untracked days and things of that nature. Now, that might change when we're in a prep, but there's a time and place for that modulation and giving your clients the ability to make those decisions for themselves. Now, some people will disagree and say it needs to be super militant. And uh, those aren't the kind of clients I'm interested in working in. Um, I'm interested in working with people who want a dynamic approach. Hmm. Well, also, they're just going to break themselves. But, you know, back to the concept of just muscle growth in the first place, there's the chemical response triggering protein synthesis that, but I think a lot of people only consider that and they say, well, this, these are the effective sets I need to trigger that. So to quote, stimulate and not annihilate is to just trigger that threshold. And then you're done. That was enough. If it only takes me three sets, then that's all I should do. If, it, you know, if I'm really advanced, it takes six or eight sets for that muscle group, then that's all I should do. But a huge part of what they're missing is the mechanical aspect of adaptation and how over time an advanced lifter absolutely needs more. You know, you're building, you're, you're changing mitochondria, you're changing the actin myosin, obvious you know, layering within a muscle fiber. And just to say that it's all about triggering a biochemical response is to literally miss half of the reason you train for that mechanical adaptation. And, and that's why I think as we look at some of these studies that, that come out with these magical numbers, you got to train each muscle group twice a week. You got to have a total of 24 sets for this muscle group or 30 for that. You know, there are always six, 12 week studies on 20 year old college kids who've been training for a year, you know, try that with somebody who's been training for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And, 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 and they have an 800 pound deadlift already. And they have to work into those sets for progressive stimulation it's just a different ball game. And now those people have extra recovery time because they're probably a little bit older in age to have reached that level of training. And they've got that much muscle tissue and strength and all of those adaptive tissue changes. So again, it's just, it's such a continuum that to find one answer is difficult. But as I always say with most science inquisition, it's not either or, it's how and when. And we're looking at how the how changes, you know, with those changing contexts. But, but I would say as a, as a definitive answer, you know, trying to change it, train those lagging body parts with more frequency when you can remember that you still need to periodize, periodize those, those variables. And so that has to be maybe a condensed time. Let's hammer home your final point, which was nutrition. You've got that lagging body part, you're training it on certain days are you doing something different? Are you advising your client? Hey, on these days, you're training this lagging body part. Let's make sure we do blank nutritionally. Yeah. So you can, you know, use a higher carb day immediately post training to restore that glycogen right away. Now, the only problem I have with that, there's a psychological component to refeed. So if someone would rather, you know, go out and uh, enjoy time with friends and family, 
from a psychological perspective, I think that's great. But if you explain there can be a benefit to a slight benefit to having that amount of carb post-workout or using that higher amount of calories post-workout for recovery, that can be advantageous for those muscle groups. And um, I, I like to go there, at least give my client the option to do what they want with that information um, and decide, is it better for me to psychologically go out with family and friends? They were probably not doing that every weekend. So they can probably use, let's say they want to grow their glutes. They can use their refeed on their glute day most of the time aside from like a holiday or a long weekend or something like that, they may want to move it somewhere else. So uh, again, giving people options, I think is really important. And I think that is paramount. I mean, I also like to consider a little bit more pre-workout food, you know, even myself at this stage of training uh, on those days, I know I'm going to have a brutal workout. It's, it's a body part or a movement that really matters to me. I know the difference of adding 25 or 50 grams of carbs that I may not have done otherwise. It's, it, it's such, you know, I, I want to say it's almost a steroid like effect. I mean, you can go into a workout and feel like, yeah, that was okay. But then those extra carbs just are so immensely powerful, but in an off season, especially, I could not agree with you more, Adam, when, when you post training, with a killer workout on a body part that you're really trying to get to respond to have within a few hours that, that just high, high calorie, high density type meal over time, week after week, it, it really pays off. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And, uh, it, you know, I think because I work with mostly women, I'm dealing with that food psychological component a lot more than probably most people. I also think that we're just more aware of it with having Dr. Corey on our staff for a long time where we're really sensitive to the psychological side. Um, I actually just got a girl from a coach and he was super militant about that. And uh, she was actually struggling psychologically. And I said, well, he's right to some degree, but you know, with me, you're going to have the dynamic or the choice to do it that way or not. And some weeks may be better for you to structure it that week than, you know, let's say it's your birthday and, you know, you maybe want to have an untracked or refeed meal on that day. Um, you're going to be able to have that flexible component with me. And, you know, to your point, it doesn't even have to be aggressive. I mean, if you're just not in a calorie deficit, consistently over time, you're already at an advantage. And, you know, who's to say that for one person, a 130 pound bikini competitor, you know, that extra 200 calories on that day is not helpful. It doesn't have to be a thousand calories. It doesn't have to push somebody into unwanted body fat. But the, the final thing that I'll say, everybody that I think is going to be very helpful to your training is, is consider overlap. Like when I was really going for a 500 pound squat and deadlift, I knew if I was deadlifting heavy, I didn't have to do Romanian deadlift super heavy that week. And if I'm doing one of those two super heavy, I probably didn't want to have heavy squats within three or four days. So just being able to cycle between different types of stimulation, uh, you know, we already talked about 
you know, just the, the different kinds of supportive exercises you can do when you may not want to directly replicate that heavy lift, but you still want to target that those muscles. So that's when you're toggling between movement focus and muscle focus. Man, if you if you're really trying to pack in a lot of frequency and as much stimulation as you can, you have to know how to bob and weave with all of those variables and just pay attention and read your body. You know, don't don't drive yourself into overtraining or injury. But yeah, as always, Adam, I, I appreciate your direction and, and some of the topics that we discuss. I think this was another great one discussing lagging body parts. So those of you who listen uh, frequently to Contest Prep University, also, you know, let us know what your questions are. I've got another podcast right after this where I'm going to directly answer a client's question. So we love responding to what you guys want to hear. We'll see you next time in Contest Prep University.